The last Roman emperor was a man named Flavius Claudius Julianus. He died in 364 AD and his final words were profound. He says, you have conquered Galilean. Flavius' words were a reference to Jesus Christ and an admission of defeat. For in just 300 years, Christianity had overwhelmed the paganism of its day and had prevailed as the primary faith of the Roman Empire. A pagan Rome had become a Christian Rome. Who would have thought that now, in the early days of the 21st century, that we'd be witnessing a revival of ancient Roman paganism? It's making a comeback. Pick up a New Age newspaper. And you'll see a myriad of advertisements from pyramid and crystal power to astrological counseling to shamanic awakenings. The list of faddish philosophies goes on and on. Remember, though, the words of the wisest man who ever lived. It was King Solomon who said in the book of Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. In the fiction of C.S. Lewis, a senior demon, uh, a demon named Screwtape. He's explaining to his apprentice, Wormwood, how to conjure up an effective temptation. And Screwtape tells the rookie demon, Old error in new dress is ever error nonetheless. As we'll learn tonight, modern spirituality sounds almost identical to the false doctrine that was threatening the church here in Colossae. Understand, New Age religion is really not new at all. The New Age is simply a repackaging of an old lie. Colossae, you see, was a small town about 80 miles upriver from Ephesus. On a modern map, you'd find Colossae in eastern Turkey. The book of Colossians was the only letter that Paul wrote that was addressed to people that he had never met and visited personally. Most Bible scholars agree that the Colossian church was a byproduct of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. While in Ephesus, Paul met a man named Epaphras. And beside, and perhaps Paul was the one who led him to Jesus. Epaphras, though, returned home to Colossae, and there he started a church. This church flourished until false doctrine began to infiltrate the people's thinking. It put a chokehold on their newfound faith. And Pastor Epaphras, a new Christian himself, had no idea what to do. He needed help. And so he ran the 900 miles from Colossae to Rome to consult Paul. While in a Roman prison, Paul sat down and he penned a defense for the truth of the gospel. In it, he dissected the Colossian heresy, a false religious system that would later become known as Gnosticism. Epaphras raced back to Colossae to douse the wildfire, but it would be about 300 years before the heresy was fully extinguished. But before Paul douses any fires, he first warms some hearts. He gives thanks in the opening of the letter for the Colossians' faith, their hope, and their love. In chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, he notes how they embraced the word of the truth of the gospel, and he says, which has come to you as it has also in all the world. Now, isn't that amazing? Understand, when he writes this letter, it's just 62 A.D. It's been just 30 years or three decades since the risen Christ had ascended into heaven. There has been no printing press. There was no motorized travel. 
There were no electronic communications. In fact, Al Gore had yet to invent the Internet. And yet already the gospel of Jesus had spread throughout the whole Mediterranean world. It proves there is no limit to what God can do through the ability of the Holy Spirit and through the availability of believers with a simple faith. Verses 9 through 12 record Paul's prayer for the Colossians. And notice Paul prays not for their health and their wealth and their material comfort. His concerns are spiritual. If you read through his prayer, you'll see that he prays not for thrills, but to know God's will. Not to walk safely, but to walk worthy. He prays not for fluff, but for fruit. Not for an increase in income, but for an increase in insight. Not for possessions, but for power. Guys, when you pray for me, this is how I want you to pray. Verse 13 tells us that God is a conquering general who has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. What a wonderful transformation. We've been rescued from a tyrant named Satan to be ruled over by a lover named Jesus in whom, we're told, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. And speaking of Jesus... In chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, Paul gives us one of the most majestic descriptions of Jesus in all the Scripture. Paul hammers the heresy while he expounds the truth. And to appreciate what he's teaching, you first have to understand what he's fighting. You see, the Gnostics, they believed that both good and evil were eternal. They believed that the material universe was evil while the spirit realm was good. Stuff you could touch was evil, whereas the spirit, the the mysterious things, these were the, the good forces. Since the true God was holy and would never himself handle evil, they believed that God had refrained from direct contact with the physical dimension. This, of course, had made creation difficult. And the Gnostics taught that God had created the world by proxy, That he had sent out emanations from himself. Or or you might view it as a rock going into the lake and ripples coming out from the rock. They, They pictured God as sending out ripples from himself. Ripples of revelation, personifications, to do his dirty work in creation. Each emanation that was sent out from God was a little further from God than the previous one. So much so that the last one in the chain who actually performed the work of creation barely even knew God. Since matter was evil, the Gnostics denied Jesus' humanity. They taught that God could never come in human flesh. And so they claimed that Jesus was a phantom or even a ghost. And they concocted all sorts of stories of how he walked on the beach but left no footprints. Gnosticism believed that the nature of God or his fullness, or as they put it, they had a word they used, they called it his pleroma. All that is God, the totality of God, the pleroma, had been chopped up like fine pepper and had been sprinkled out over the entire religious spectrum. In other words, Jesus was just one of God's emanations, but just one, as were all the other gods and goddesses and angels and spiritual beings. And thus there was nothing unique in, in, in essence about Jesus. He was just one of many links to God. 
Gnosticism believed that the life of God could be found anywhere, in anything, animate or inanimate. It all sounds so familiar, doesn't it? Again, Gnosticism was an ancient version of what today we call the New Age. John targeted Gnosticism in 1 John chapter 1 when he said, That which was from the beginning, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and catch this, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. We touched him. He was real. Jesus did come in the flesh, John says. John also takes aim at the Gnostics in 1 John chapter 4, verse 3, when he says, Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. In addition, of course, the Gnostics despise the crucifixion. How could anything physical affect our salvation? And thus the Gnostics denied the atoning work of the blood of Jesus Christ. But that's why the verse that we just read, verse one of Col- verse 14 of Colossians chapter 1, Paul said, In Christ we have redemption through what? Through His blood. Paul makes sure we know that it is the physical blood, the sacrifice of Jesus that saves us. For Gnostics, salvation was, in essence, the reclimbing of this ladder of emanations that were responsible for creation. It was a process of spiritual enlightenment. The Greek word gnosis means knowledge. And to the Gnostics, Jesus was a good starting point for spiritual discovery, but the knowledge of God would also be found in any number of places. Paul, of course, disagreed with that. The ancient Gnostics and the modern-day Gnostics, or the New Agers, they're looking for God in all the wrong places. Here he begins to describe Jesus in light of this heresy going on in the church. In verse 15, he says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The word translated image means an exact representation. In other words, Jesus was in the same form. He's made of the same stuff, the same substance. Jesus was not just some weakened or deluded reflection of God. Jesus was the image of the invisible God, God Himself. He was also the firstborn over all creation. Both the later Gnostics and today's Jehovah's Witnesses use this verse to infer that Jesus was a created being and not truly divine. But Paul's intent was just the opposite. The biblical term firstborn refers not so much to birth order, but to status and preeminence. In Exodus chapter 4 verse 22, Jacob was called the firstborn even though he was younger than Esau. Biblically, Firstborn is a title of authority and privilege. The firstborn had a special position in the family. And thus Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. It doesn't make Jesus a part of creation. Rather, it sets him apart. It makes him the CEO, the chief, the boss of creation. Verse 16 tells us, For by him, by Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. In other words, God did all His creating, both the spiritual realm and the physical world, through His Son, Jesus Christ. Not through some distant emanation. God created all things through Jesus Christ. Verse 17 says, And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. Jesus is not only the creator of the universe, but its sustainer. He is the one who holds it all together. 
Colin's law of electricity states that like charges repel. And yet, in the nucleus of every atom, we have like charges combined and attracted and holding together. Protons combined in the nucleus of an atom. That goes against Colin's law of electricity, and scientists have their theories, but no one knows for sure what overcomes the law and what keeps the protons together. Paul, though, here in this verse, explains the atomic glue. It's none other than Jesus Christ. He is the one in whom all things consist. He is the one holding all things together. He is the creator and the sustainer. Verse 18 says that Jesus is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Jesus is the head of creation and he is the head of the church. That in all things, Paul says, he may have the preeminence. In other words, Jesus is not a step on a long path to God. Jesus is the end of the search. Jesus is none other than God himself. And in verse 19 is Paul's crowning statement. His main defense against these Gnostics. He says, For it pleased the Father that in Him, in Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. Remember, the Greek counterpart of fullness is this word pleroma. It was the term the Gnostics used for the totality of God. Gnosticism said that the pleroma, or the fullness of God, had been cut up like fine pepper and sprinkled out all over creation. Paul says, No way. The fullness was deposited in one place. God made one deposit, and that one place is a person, and His name is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the sum total of all that God is. God's the knowledge of God is not at the end of some new age rainbow. Here is the truth. If you know Jesus, you know all there is to know about God. By Jesus, it pleased God, we're told, to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight, if, and there is the condition, if. Verse 23. Notice it's not just professing faith at one time in the past that covers our sins. That presents us holy unto God. Verse 23 says that we are presented holy if we continue in the faith. Paul teaches that our spiritual status, our right standing with God is conditional. It's up to you and me not only to have faith, but to continue in that faith. You see, faith is not a one-time profession. It's an attitude in which I must continue. I used to be staunchly one saved, always saved. Until I took Colossians chapter 1 verse 23 and other verses like it at face value. To me, it's impossible to get around the obvious. Here we're told that we're holy, we're acceptable. If, if what? If we continue in the faith. Having faith is not enough. I believe that you have to keep believing if you expect to be saved. It's not by anything we do or don't do. Never was, never will be. It's by one thing. It's by faith. But we must continue in that faith. Paul goes on to say he wants us grounded in our faith. He wants us to remain steadfast in our faith. 
never moved away from the faith that's ours in Christ Jesus. In verse 24, Paul says that his sufferings fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. That's a mysterious wording that difficult to decipher. Here's my take on it, though. Remember when an angry Saul, before he became Paul, remember when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, persecuting the church, that Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It was interesting. Paul was hassling the church, but Jesus had taken it personally. I believe that Jesus still suffers today. Not physically, but in empathy with his church. Persecution continues around the globe, even to this hour. And we help fill up or bear with the sufferings of Christ whenever we show concern for his suffering church. Paul explains how Christianity was once a mystery, but now God has revealed his glory. And in verse 27 of chapter 1, he says to the Colossians, And it's a wonderful phrase. He says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Understand, Christianity is not a philosophy we learn. It's not a set of rules that we obey. It's an invasion of our soul. God lives in me. Christianity is not imitation. It's impartation. You know, I can watch an artist paint a portrait from now until eternity and never paint like that artist. Imitation just won't work. For me to paint like that artist, God would need to take the spirit of the artist and put the spirit of that artist inside of me. Impartation. But that is exactly what God has done. That's how we become like Jesus. Not by trying to mimic Him, but by receiving His Spirit into our lives and walking in His Spirit and letting His Spirit live His life out through me. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul continues to confront the false teachings of the Gnostics. The Gnostics claimed a superior knowledge and a hidden wisdom. Without its special knowledge, no one could be saved. But Paul says the mystery of God is no longer a mystery. The cat is out of the bag. Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Guys, God is no longer keeping secrets. God has told men where all the treasure is buried. It's hidden in Jesus. And all we need to uncover the riches and treasures of Christ is to go to Jesus Christ. Paul says in chapter 2 verse 3, For in Christ are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. X marks the spot. The treasure's been buried in one place, and that's in the person of Jesus Christ. This means that no secret handshakes, no privileged passwords, no clandestine rites help get a man or woman to God. The requirements are simple. Faith in Jesus. That's all you need. Paul says in verse 6, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith. We receive Jesus by faith, and thus we grow in faith. It's not faith plus some mystical add-on that makes us right with God. It's faith and faith alone. Paul warns us in verse 8, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, 
according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. You see, the Gnostics sounded so spiritual. They used mystical-sounding terminology. They delved into complicated philosophies. It reminds me of the Idaho Falls Science Fair. One year it was won by a junior high student who demonstrated how gullible people can be when confronted with sophisticated, scientific-sounding terms. He asked folks if they would be willing to sign a a petition calling for a ban on dihydrogen monoxide. The student rightly told the people that dihydrogen monoxide causes excessive sweating and vomiting. It's a major component of acid rain. It causes severe burns in gaseous states. Accidental inhalation can kill you. It decreases the effectiveness of automotive brakes. And it's been found inside of tumors of cancer patients. Eighty-six percent of the people he talked to wanted to ban the chemical completely. Twelve percent were undecided, but they were willing to sign some kind of prohibition. Only one person that he interviewed knew that dihydrogen monoxide was actually water. You know, I had a friend who joined a cult one time. He was so impressed with the depth of the teaching. And he invited me to come and hear the leader of the cult. I agreed. But when I got there and when I listened to the guy, I realized this isn't deep. This is just convoluted. It's just complex. My friend mistook complicated for deep. Just because a guy throws out a lot of spiritual sounding terms, just because he uses a lot of mystical language, doesn't mean he's deep. The deepest truth that I know is Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That's deep, but that's also very simple. Don't let anyone cheat you, Paul says, out of the simple faith in Jesus Christ through some tradition or through some empty deceit or through some philosophy or tradition of man or basic principle of the world. You hold on to Christ. Verse 9 says, For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In other words, God has put all of His eggs in one basket. All the eggs of revelation are found in one basket. All of God is found in one place in a man named Jesus Christ. Paul adds this in verse 10, And you are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. In other words, if God is in Christ, and if you are in Christ, and if Christ is in you, then in Christ you are complete. You're as right with God, as acceptable with God as you will ever get. Nothing needs to be added to improve on who we are and what we have by faith in Christ Jesus. Not circumcision, not baptism, not the Jewish festivals, not fasting. Nothing can make a man or a woman more right with God than he already is in Christ Jesus. And from verse 8 through the end of chapter 2, Paul says to beware of four dangers. Beware of intellectualism. 
Beware of legalism. Beware of mysticism and beware of asceticism. You see, Gnosticism was a blend of all the above. It borrowed from Greek rationalism, from Jewish legalism, from Eastern mysticism, and from Roman asceticism. The Gnostics, you see, concocted a strange diversity of morality. There were basically two extremes in Gnostic thought. Since matter was evil, some of the Gnostics believed that you should abstain from as much contact with the physical world as possible. These people deprived themselves and deprived their body of natural relationships, of basic necessities, of legitimate pleasures. They practiced austere forms of self-denial, physical Pleasures were frowned on by this branch of the Gnostics. But there was another group of Gnostics, the nasty Gnostics, you might call them. They believed that since matter was evil and we were made of matter, then it's impossible to escape it. And so they went to the other extreme. Okay, well, it doesn't really matter then what you do with your body. They figured they could live as they pleased, that self-indulgence was the ticket. In essence, they had a spirituality without morality. They talked about God. They prayed to God. They chanted. They meditated. They visualized. And then they went to bed with their neighbor's wife and thought nothing of it. Again, sound familiar? That's the kind of spirituality being tossed about today. A spirituality without any morality. The new age, you see, is nothing but an old lie. In verse 11, Paul attacks the Jewish or the legalistic component of Gnosticism. He says, in Christ, we have been circumcised spiritually. What's important is not the clipping off of the fold of flesh, but the cutting away of our sinful, fleshly nature. And he says, baptism is no different. No, no, not even do you, do you need circumcision, but neither do you need baptism. Baptism, he says, simply symbolizes what circumcision foreshadowed. The spiritual transformation that takes place when a person comes to Christ. At our conversion, you see, the old man is buried. The new man is resurrected. And baptism's watery grave is a portrayal of the spiritual death and resurrection we've experienced in Christ. In verses 13 and 14, Paul says that on the cross, Jesus wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. In other words, the Jewish law. He said it became obsolete through the work of Christ. We no longer today follow a set of principles. We follow a person. Christianity is love, not legalism. You see, a lot happened on the cross. Verse 15 says that Jesus disarmed principalities and powers. He, de- he dealt the death blow in the battle against Satan and his stooges. On the cross, his power was shattered. On the cross, Jesus defeated Satan. And now the only power that Satan has is what we allow him to have. What we give him in our lives, the foothold that we give him. This is why we need to resist the devil. And we're told if we do, he will flee from us. Paul also says in verse 16, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. Since Jesus has done away with the law, why are we trying to live under the law? The Seventh-day Adventists once taught that those who worshipped on Sunday and not on Saturday 
had taken the mark of the beast and were headed to hell. Paul says, no way. Rules don't get you any closer to God and neither do rituals. Keeping one day holier than the next day does nothing to enhance my standing with God. The Jewish feasts, the Sabbath days, were merely pictures of the work of Christ to come and ultimate, ultimately a picture of the rest that we would experience when we came into a relationship with Jesus Christ. These Sabbath rules and Sabbath laws were actually symbolic. They were foreshadowings of the work of Jesus Christ. In verse 17, Paul calls the Sabbath laws a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. What if my wife went on a 10-day trip? Trust me, when she got home, I would be glad to see her. But what if when she walked through the door, rather than embracing her, I started hugging and kissing her shadow? You would think I had flipped, that I was ready for the funny farm, no doubt. But that's what God thinks. When people get caught up in the feast days and in the rituals, they're kissing the shadow rather than the Savior. Don't you understand? All of that was simply given to point us to Jesus Christ. Now that He's come, He needs to be our focal point. The Gnostics believed that angels also embodied God and were a path to God. And that's why Paul warns in verse 18 about the worship of angels. Worship Jesus, not angels. Isn't it sad that some Christians, it just seems that Jesus is never enough for them. That that just Jesus, if you can say just Jesus, Jesus is everything. But it's sad that for some people, just following Jesus is never enough. They're always on some tangent. They're always riding some spiritual hobby horse. It's angels, or it's fasting, or it's visions, or it's gold fillings, or it's some novel manifestation. Hey, I just want to see Jesus. Jesus is enough for me. Being touched by an angel won't save you. Makes for a good TV theme, but it's not going to save you. I want to be touched by Jesus Christ. He's our priority. Notice verse 9. Holding fast to the head. Guys, hold fast to Jesus Christ. Verse 20 reminds me that when we come to Christ, we die to sin, but we also die to the law. Never again to live under the law. He says, don't revert to do not touch or do not taste or do not handle. That's legalism. Legalism looks spiritual. It looks holy. Willpower looks impressive. Legalism can sometimes pass off as humility, but Paul says in chapter 2, verse 23, it's of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. The only way to overcome the flesh is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, it's impartation, not imitation. It's God putting His Spirit in me and living His life through me. We are complete in Christ. What we need is faith in Him. In light of these first two chapters, Paul tells the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 1, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, 
not on things on the earth. Comedian Jack Benny was a penny pincher. He could squeeze and hold on to his money. And the joke is told of Jack being held up at gunpoint. The impatient robber was waving his gun. He was demanding, your money or your life? Jack Benny told him, don't rush me, I'm thinking about it. It's sad when a person's life is their money, or their career, or their home, or their hobby, or even their family. Hopefully you've discovered that real life is found in Jesus Christ. And if Jesus is your life, then set your sights on higher things. Don't be shallow and earthbound in your ambitions. Gear your mind to think spiritually. Live in light of eternity. Verse 3 says, For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You see, the Christian lives a full and a satisfying life, but to the outside world, it is a hidden life. People look at your life and they say things like, Oh, he's a committed Christian. But, but what is he? Li- he's got nothing to show for it. He's missing out on so much. And in a sense, they're right. You are missing out on a lot of the things that this world has to offer. They don't see that our blessings, the things we're living for, are buried in our heart. Or they're waiting for us in heaven. The Lord we follow is seen only through eyes of faith. The Spirit who empowers us is more sensed than touched. Our source of joy and love and peace is accessed from the inside rather than from the outside. They don't see our joy. They don't see the satisfaction we experience. The Christian life is a full life. It's a rich life, far richer, far deeper than anything the world could offer. But to the outside world, it is a hidden life. Our lives are hid with Christ. We're like an iceberg. All the world sees is the fraction of the iceberg that's above the surface. They don't see the main part of the iceberg, which is below the waterline. We're like that iceberg. All the world sees is just a fraction of who we are and what we have in Christ Jesus. The larger part of our life is spiritual. It lies below the surface. But one day, hear this, but one day, According to verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Imagine the day when Jesus returns in all His power. The whole world will stand before Him, tongue-tied, jaws dropped, in fearful awe of His majesty and His glory. And then suddenly, your life and your devotion, what the world assumed was a waste, will instantly be explained and validated and envied by everyone who had missed it. Your hidden life will suddenly be exposed and everyone will see that, wow, that was real life after all. The people who know you will now see you standing beside your living Lord, clothed in grace and glory. And in the end, trust me, the hidden life will be the envied life. Our job today is to place on outward display this inner life. The hidden life is unveiled through us, through a holy life. Paul tells us to put to death the former habits and to put on Christ. 
We need to live out the changes that Jesus has made in our hearts. And here's a list of the old habits that you need to put to death, Paul says. First is fornication or premarital sex. You know, today the buzzword is safe sex. But God's word says save sex. Recently, a USA Today report refuted the common wisdom. It reported that a couple's chances of divorce is 50% higher if they've lived together before marriage. I've heard folks excuse living together by saying that they want to test drive before they buy. But premarital sex is a test drive in a demolition derby. Yeah, it's a test drive, but when you're done, you've damaged what you wanted to buy. And it no longer works properly. If you want it to be valuable, if you want it to be important, then keep it safe. Then obey God's word and and reserve it for marriage. He tells us to put to death a number of things. Uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language, and lying to one another. Verses 9 and 10 excuse me, tell us to put off the old man and to put on the new man. In Christ, I am a new Sandy. It's time to stop thinking and acting like the old, rotten, worn out Sandy. Did you know that this church has a dress code? You, you probably thought you like coming to Calvary Chapel because nobody's telling you how to dress. But that's not true. This church has a dress code. We don't always enforce it, but we do have a dress code. And of course, our dress code has nothing to do with the clothes you wear. It has to do with your attitude. Look at verse 12. Paul tells us what to wear to church. Here's the dress code when you come to the family of God. Put on tender mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, Bearing with one another, forgiveness and love. When you come to church, that's what you need to wear. Tender mercies, humbleness of mind, love for one another. Verse 15 says, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. The Greek word that's translated rule referred to an umpire at an athletic competition. Paul is suggesting that when decisions are too close to call, when we're faced with bang-bang choices, let the peace of God make the call. Don't ignore your uneasiness. Don't ignore the red flags that the Holy Spirit may be raising. Let God's peace umpire your decisions. But also, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You see, the peace of God can be subjective at times, and that's why we need the Word of Christ. Let the peace of God rule your heart while the Word of God sets rules for your life. Read God's Word and rest in God's peace, and you'll never miss God's will. Paul says in verse 17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. That includes what we do at church, at home, at work, at school, even at play. You know, there's an old saying that the world applies to a person who gets serious about following Jesus. Often people will say, he's too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. You ever heard that statement? 
You know, I have found that's not true. In fact, I have found that the more heavenly-minded you become, the more earthly good you'll be. In the remainder of chapter 3, Paul describes how a heavenly perspective impacts and improves earthly relationships at home and at work. Verses 18 and 19 tell us, Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. God's plan for marriage is an ordered equality. Husbands and wives are of identical worth, but each has been given a specific role. The husband's job is to lead and love his family, while the wife's job is to follow and support her husband. There are, though, two limits placed on the wife's obligation. First, a wife's obligation is to her own husband not to everyone else's husband. Don't you boss my wife around and I won't boss your wife around. Wives, submit to your own husbands. And then notice second, a wife's responsibility is also limited to what is fitting in the Lord. A wife is under no obligation to submit to an ungodly or to an unbiblical demand. We're told children, obey your parents. Did y'all hear that back there? Children, obey your parents. But parents have a reciprocal responsibility to their kids. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. There was a Roman legal code called the patria potestis, or the power of a father. It said that a father could do anything that he wanted with his kids. He could beat them. He could sell them as slaves. He could even kill them. Hey, be glad you weren't born in the Roman Empire, all right? If a rowdy teenager, you know, got got too out of hand, you know, and the father could just take them out and smack them up. It could get rough for a kid. Be thankful that the Christian ethic has changed that Roman attitude. For Paul tells the parents that God wants them to love and to nurture their children. That kids need to be handled with kid gloves. That a parent should treat a child in an encouraging, in a helpful way. He says, don't provoke your kids. Don't crush their spirit. Rather, build them up and encourage them in the Lord. As we said this morning, in 1977, Johnny Paycheck had a hit song entitled, Take That Job and Shove It. And everyone across America who hated their job loved that song. But you know, God wants us to change our tune. God wants us to, ch- to sing, take this job and love it. And we can by turning our work into worship. And that's what he suggests we do in verse 23. And whatever you do, do it heartily. As to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. If you're a Christian, it doesn't matter if you're employed by AT&T or GE or IBM or Taco Bell or TJ Maxx. In reality, you work for Jesus Christ. For a Christian, a job is another way to serve the Lord. Don't separate job from Jesus. 
You're not just climbing the corporate ladder. You're laboring for the Lord. You're impacting your world for Him. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3 encourages us to pray. And especially to pray for open doors where we can share the gospel. Verse 5 tells us to be careful how we treat unbelievers. Don't forget, the guy you do business with is the guy you're trying to lead to the Lord. Verse 6 says, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. A Christian needs to learn a new language. Grace talk. Is your speech seasoned with love, with kindness, with courtesy? Paul closes chapter 4 with some personal correspondence. And it proves to me that Paul was not only a great soul winner, but he was also a great friend maker. Paul had many pals. Someone once remarked, I went out to find a friend, but could not find one there. I went out to be a friend, and friends were everywhere. You know, there's a vitamin you can take that will help you make friends. You know what it is, don't you? Be one. Be one. Be one. If you still haven't gotten it, be one. Hey, if you'll be a friend, you'll find friends. I think the reason Paul had so many friends was that he was a great friend to have. And and he loved to communicate with his friends. And that's what he's doing here. He sends out his personal greetings. Paul mentions Tychicus and Onesimus. And when we get to the book of Philemon, we'll discover the story uh, about Onesimus. He also mentions his Jewish friends. And in verse 12, he mentions Pastor Epaphras who had labored in prayer for the Colossians and for their two sister churches in Laodicea and Heropolis. Isn't that interesting, though? He labored in prayer. When was the last time we labored for a friend in prayer? Notice in verse 15, we're told that the church in Laodicea met in a man's house. Church buildings weren't constructed until the 4th century A.D. The early church always met in homes. I think both homes and church buildings have their drawbacks. Some have their good points, they have their drawbacks. What's important to remember is that it's not the facility. Whether it's a home or a church building, it's not the facility, it's not the building that makes the church. It's the people, it's their fellowship and their friendliness. Verse 16 commands the believers in Colossae and Laodicea to swap letters. Apparently, Paul wrote a letter to the Laodiceans, which we no longer possess. And there are a lot of people, you know, that get bent out of shape with that. Oh, what did it say? I I wish we knew. And I did do too. But, you know, rather than worry about what we don't possess, I think we would do better to try to obey what we do possess. And there is enough in this letter to the Colossians to keep us busy for a while, don't you think? In Christ, we are complete. So, let's put off the old. Let's put on the new. Let's live our lives for Jesus and watch Him shine His grace and love and mercy through us into this needy world around us. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this wonderful book. 
Lord, as we continue through your word, we ask, Lord, that you just just pour out your word through us. Help it to challenge us. Lord, I, I pray that we would leave tonight excited about who we are in Christ. But help us, Lord, to also be challenged to allow that realization to impact every area of our lives. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for loving us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.